Welcome to the MUFG Global Markets Podcast. I'm John Cook, and I'm joined today by George Goncalves, MUFG's head of U.S. macro strategy. It's Tuesday, July 11th, 2023. Welcome back to the podcast, George. Great to be back on. It's been a while. It has been a while. It's been uh, actually far too long, um, but I guess that's what happens when it's you know when it's summer and uh, there's a lot going on. So, um, it, you know, so given that it's been you know that it's been a while, um, and also given that you know so far this year, I'd argue that the market um, and 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 the economy really has defied many participants' expectations. Um, you know, yours included. Uh, and uh, you know, given that we've also started the second half of the year, um, why don't we start today's episode with a quick recap of the year so far across both the economy and financial markets? I'll do my best, and and uh, there's a lot to cover, obviously, considering the sort of first half of the year that we had. I'll zoom out and and really focus in on the big picture global macro because I think that really set the stage, uh, and then go back and zoom in on the U.S. But you know, as you recall, uh, and those in the markets will remember, you know, Q1 and just the beginning of 2023 started off with you know, you know, great expectations. We had the you know, combo of China reopening, Europe having uh, gone through a mild winter, which should have helped reignite global growth. Uh, overall, you know, initially, you know, those animal spirits um, and just that kind of backdrop gave to you know gave gave us some strong tailwinds, which helped risk assets you know come out. Uh, roaring out of the gates at the beginning of the year, where you know the beginning uh, January was one of the strongest months for many asset classes, especially for credit. Uh, however, you know as the kind of quarter and the year progressed, I mean, especially on the macro front, global macro that is, uh, that kind of great reopening really turned out to be less robust. Uh, most of the, the euphoria did peak pretty early on, at least for Q1 and in the month of January and early February. Central banks overall, you know, the Fed kept tightening and sounded hawkish. You know, really nothing new there. Uh, there was, as you'll recall and remember, you know, a lot of um, you know concerns that perhaps maybe Bank of Japan was going to change their yield curve control sooner, and that led to you know positioning moves in the marketplace. And you know, I'll go go into that more later. You know, U.S. data uh, again started the year kind of like where we are now, where it's bifurcated between the service sector and the jobs market being more resilient, but even there showing signs of weakness and starting to kind of roll over a little bit. But manufacturing has persistently, like for one of the longest stretches in time, manufacturing and all the indicators that go along with it, the ISMs, PMIs, all suggesting you know weakness and 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 also that plus the yield curve, you know, hinting at a recession, which has been a fear that many of us have had uh, or concern, I should say, uh, since uh, late last year. I, you know, all the way up until early March, you know, even while, you know, we're, you know, that week where the regional bank issue started, you know, Chair Powell was, you know, testifying actually uh, that week of early March, where till this day, you know, that still marks the high watermark for, on the SOFR curve, where rates got, you know, we're making a run towards 6% on terminal rates. And then the regional turmoil really took place, right? So, like I think that Q1 backdrop was so critical to how it influenced both policymakers, forecasters like myself, uh, you know, investors more broadly. Really, I think had a, a lasting impact on you know what sort of um, you know lingering issues would continue um, uh, in the financial system and the economy. If you remember, you know, it was not just an, like an event; it was it was a process. I mean, we had 
rate vol that was unleashed like I've never seen before at the end of Q1, Q2, which I know you felt it as well. Uh, you, know, you know, the two year went from basically 5% down to like 3.6 with multiples, five standard deviation moves every other day with like 20 basis point type moves. You know, that rate vol in certain option structures almost surpassed or met or surpassed what we saw during the financial crisis. Uh, you know, speaking of the moves, we have the move index, which is a broader kind of bond market of vol metric, um, like the VIX. That was like the most volatile since uh, you know COVID shock. So like, it really had a you know, profound impact, I think, on a lot of us, especially me. Um, you know, the mortgage market was also in the crosshairs, but it really the spreads in that market really only peaked in the days heading into the FDIC sales, which were on the back of again this regional banking turmoil. And you know, meanwhile, stocks were pretty sanguine throughout that whole period. I mean, they they did go down initially. They were trading in a range between 3,800, 4,200. Didn't really look like as if they were going to change direction. And then we had this you know, later breakout in Q2 once a lot of this concern around the banks as well as the debt ceiling got behind us. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, stocks didn't look like they were going to go anywhere. And then there was you know, Fed actions, which helped at least address a lot of these liquidity concerns in the banking system with the bank term funding program being put in place, the discount window being used. You know, all helped alleviate you know bank pressures, and even throughout that period, credit spreads had like these brief episodes of whining, but they wouldn't last, and like they would just come ratcheting back in. And you saw you know pretty decent move in IG, and then eventually high yield even caught a bid and has continued to perform. So, like you know, it it, it was an amazing you know like setup, and then we still had to deal with the debt ceiling. You know, the the concerns around you know. The debt ceiling and actual default, which of course we've now moved beyond that. But you know, even post fact, the associated issues with all this issuance of T bills. You know, I'm sure I'm sure I've overlooked something, but in retrospect, you know, this like one, two, three punch of the the banking uh, crisis, uh, concerns around uh, you know like changes in global monetary policy, and the debt ceiling. Uh, and like, you know, for us, which really hits home, you know, you know, Bank of Japan not changing policy, uh, you, know, you know, probably hurt a lot of macro investors. Uh, and then, you know, that was followed by, you know, the regional banking issues, which stopped out, uh, you know, in hindsight, looking through positioning data, a lot of shorts in the rates market and stocks climbed the wall of worry post that ceiling. I think, you know, that sort of backdrop, it's I mean, that's like, you know, one for the history books for sure. And has left many macro and active investors with some of the lowest conviction that I can sense in years. And uh, you know, and given all this position shuffling, uh, I think it's you know, it's been that sort of backdrop of underinvested investors, short, a lot of volatility, that kind of led us to this point now where markets look more sanguine. The economy did perform better, but looks like the markets have now overshot, especially on the risk side. Meanwhile, the bond market is starting to catch up that the fact the Fed's not done yet either. So an amazing first half, and I think it's going to really set us up for an interesting second half as well. Wow. I do not think I realized how big of a question that was. Um, and also, I think I ha forgot half of that stuff, probably just via necessity because it, so, uh, it was so traumatic at the time. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, very, very comprehensive background. Thank you. Um, so that sets us up for the next question, which is obviously, what do you expect for the second half? 
um, you know, it's pretty remarkable as you as you as you highlighted in a number of different ways, pretty remarkable first half of the year, um, which which makes me wonder if that that continues or or, or if things kind of, you know, mellow out. Um, uh, obviously, there's still or many are still expecting a recession in the second half of the year. Those those expectations have been sort of um, uh, dashed thus far. Um, I did notice that you recently changed your rates forecast, presumably in response to this. Um, what's been pretty good, uh, even even considering the most recent payroll report, but but pretty good employment data. Um, although you know many would argue that that is a more backward looking indicator. Um, you know, but also uh, the Fed has just stuck to this hawkish um, their, this hawkish rhetoric. Uh, you know, I I had you know perhaps naively thought that as they as they raised rates, they might kind of you know dial it back a little and kind of focus on keeping rates higher for longer. But it seems like they're hell bent on on a couple more hikes here. Um, so so I guess the you know again the the question to you is uh, you know what what you know what does the second half of the year have in store for us? Yeah, no, let's just focus on the rates part, which is near and dear to us, um, and and think through how that's going to translate to other asset classes uh, more broadly. I, I do think, as you can kind of tell, that you know this general market move in in the first half feels like it was positioning driven and a huge catch up and then a chase and probably has overextended, especially in risk assets. And so perhaps we've pulled forward a lot of the uh, potential upside. We shall see, uh, especially if we get a further normalization in rates and in particular in the belly of the curve. Uh, but, you know, in many ways, like you have to kind of go back still to the, the setup that we were uh, dealt with, which is in many ways, you know, the regional bank issue reduce some of the Fed hawkishness. Because if you go back and recall, like, you know, the Fed uh, you know, was concerned, and I think rightly so, because I think we still have issues down the road, which, which we can get to in, in, our, in, our, in our last question. But I do think that uh, you know, perhaps, you know, they skipped in June because they want to see the totality of all their hikes, as well as the uh, lingering problems in the banking system uh, and, you know, the potential for further credit tightening or credit crunch from what took place. Uh, you know, perhaps if we never got the regional bank issues early on in Q1, the Fed maybe would have been done by now. They would have you know, hiked in June or maybe uh, ratcheted up higher. I mean, even in March, uh, when Chair Powell was speaking before the regional bank issues, like he was hinting at perhaps they would go back to doing 50 basis point hikes again, right? Moving from 25 back up to 50, they could have been ostensibly done. <laughs> and here we are, you know, this is dragged out, which has made it much more challenging for, for fixed income investors. Um, I, I do think that you know that runs the risk of the Fed is now hiking into a slowdown at a minimum, potentially a recession, uh, and that could be you know a policy error. And in, in, in hindsight, we, we we shall see. Um, you know, we are getting to the low points in inflation, especially on the headline. So the base effects of those disinflationary base effects are probably are probably most helpful throughout the summer period. But then we get into the winter, uh, and the, and the, that those numbers turn around, unless housing were to continue, or housing uh, rental inflation, I should say, would start to lower, come down on, on a little bit lower. And if used car prices come in lower, then maybe we'll get some help on the core side. But the one thing that you know we're 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 obviously noticing is that it's easier to cut inflation from eight to four percent, but it's going to be much harder to go from four to two, which is the Fed's mandate. Meanwhile, that does raise the issues of stagflation and maybe low growth and higher inflation than the Fed really wants, you know, leaving the Fed with really bad options, like not like not hiking or having to really force a, a, an even bigger recession to kill it finally. 
And so, you know, you know, my my view up until this point on the rate side was, uh, you know, you know, as 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 you can tell from <laughs> my answers so far and in the, in my work in the recent months, my views were really heavily influenced by what took place with the with the regional bank issue early on. Uh, we were, you know, holding you know, what I call like two views in tandem. The first view that data would eventually slow, and and it has been slowing outside the jobs market, and even the jobs market is showing some preliminary cracks, but not enough yet to really dissuade the Fed from tightening because inflation is still their their primary issue. But the second kind of uh, view that I was holding in tandem was this idea that um, this turmoil in the first half of the year eventually will lead to something bigger breaking. We just don't know where it's going to happen. These sort of things operate with huge lags. And so for us, I felt like it didn't make sense for the Fed to hike further, that they should have really incorporate these long variable lags uh, and other forms of tightening, like the bank credit channel, they should really incorporate that into their process. And that all this eventually would result in cuts, not necessarily hikes in the second half. But, you know, given the re- resilience of the economy so far, I mean, these th- this is taking much longer to realize. So I, I think in general, my medium term view and the framework I've been employing is the right one. But I'm keeping a, an open mind that it might just take longer to surface, uh, given that we've been dealing with, um, you know, these large lags, but, you know, so in, 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 in short, in, in, from a practical standpoint, that means that you know, we do have another hike now uh, expe- expectation, which is basically priced in anyway for the July meeting. But I think beyond that, it's going to get much trickier. We have a long, a long lead time between the July meeting and the September meeting. It's the longest period of the year where the fed does not have a meeting. Uh, we have Jackson hole in between then, and we get into the sleep, sleepy time of the of the of the markets, which sometimes can be the most volatile time periods in like uh, late August, early September. So I think like you know one hike and then really think about it. You know, keep talking tough and hawkish to make sure that your hikes are effective, but they can quickly pivot if something you know goes wrong. Yeah, and we certainly saw that from the Fed in 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 March. But yeah, so I, I it sounds like you you are sort of maintaining the same view, but you're stretching it out a little bit. Um, so you have you have another hike. I think if I'm not mistaken, um, I think you did reduce some of your term rate forecasts um a bit further out the curve. But please do correct me if I'm uh, if I'm wrong. That's um, right. Okay. Uh, all right. So lastly, any forecast. Uh, would be, you know, just our discussion of a forecast would be incomplete without discussing the risks to that forecast. Um, so what are the risk factors our listeners should be considering and how would they affect your base case forecast? I guess said another way, what's keeping you up at night, of course, other than your year old daughter? So there is um, like maybe one positive kind of risk factor and I can list a lot more negative risk factors. On the positive side, I mean, I guess... Yeah, perhaps the economy has become more uh, accustomed to these, you know, higher rates, and they're not working as effectively as possible. So the risk is like this idea of is the transmission mechanism broken? But I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, and and perhaps that you know the you get this immaculate disinflation, which everyone talks about. Inflation keeps heading lower, and the Fed can then uh, reverse some of these hikes, and that could, you know, result in a soft landing. We, we've we've dis- discussed this in various other podcasts as well as I've written about it. You know, soft landings are super rare. Uh, again, not impossible, but you know, given a levered economy as much as the U.S. is, and I don't think the U.S. can 
you know, decouple from the rest of the world, which is also slowing down. You know, China has been having a difficult time you know, really getting its economy up and running. Europe is, you know, teetering on on, on recessions, if, if not some areas are already in recession, that it's going to be hard for the U.S. to decouple if the rest of the world is decelerating. So I, I still think that eventually these hikes will matter and we'll, we'll end up with a slowdown. But, you know, it's quite, it's also possible that we're now uh, in a less rate sensitive environment and perhaps it's going to take a lot more and, or the Fed won't have to go as far and therefore we dodge a recession. I mean, that's obviously a possibility. It's not our base case. Uh, and that would be a upside risk for our outlook, which is not what we're factoring in. You know, conversely, I mean, I think what I'm really concerned about is that, you know, the Fed hikes so quickly that it, that all of this tightening is just going to show up at once. You know, we we in the past would have much longer hiking cycles where the economy would kind of like get into it and and get accustomed to these level of rates. Perhaps we're still living from the the time where there's a lot of stimulus from the fiscal side, and the Fed was very accommodated before it turned hawkish. That you know that that benefit of easing was still in the system, but. As we kind of uh, swing the other way, that you're going to get this uh, massive hit from the long and variable lags of the of all this tightening happening at once. I don't think the transmission mechanism is completely dead. I think it's just lagging. Uh, I think policy tightening still works, and it's and it's it serves a purpose. Uh, and but in hindsight, you know, I guess what I underestimated was this lingering fiscal stimulus. You know, that the average cost of funding hasn't re- really reacted or resetted fast enough. Uh, given how quickly the Fed hiked, uh, and and you know, and in speaking of you know risks around like the fiscal outlook, we're not going to get much more fiscal stimulus. Uh, there is stuff that um, or programs that are in place, I should say, that will be with us for like five, ten years, and you know, part of the IRA um, and and trying to uh, revamp our infrastructure and things like that are going to be um, good tailwinds over time. But I don't think they will be strong enough to overcome what the Fed just did, and also the lack of the big stimulus that happened shortly after COVID. So, and, and one of like you know, the last kind of relief um, mechanisms that are in place, which is coming offline, is this uh, student debt repayment, which is going to really you know feel like a tax hike for many people, which I've forgotten about their student payments. Uh, and it's going to impact consumer financing and retail sales. So I think like that's still ahead of us for the second half. That's going to be super important. The other... Uh, Bigger picture issues around liquidity and the remaining central bank actions. Again, we think the Fed's going to hike in July. Uh, we'll see if they hike another one, uh, but I mean, they're going to at least um, you know hang that hang that over the markets until uh, something either breaks or the economy gets weaker. And in the second half, I think the main focus again, which will be super critical for us, is what the Bank of Japan does with yield curve control. Uh, and you know that in many ways might trump all actions from other central banks if there truly was a material change in the yield yield curve control. And, and, and I guess lastly, uh, coming back full circle to some of the things that have been kind of keeping me up at night is this idea of you know, the markets perhaps have moved too quickly away from the concerns around the regional banks and generally the, the financial system at large. It's a kind of a catch-22, like the more the Fed hikes or the more it stays higher for longer, the more likely these banks are going to see rate risks linger and and, the, and their bonds that are underwater are even more underwater and and eventually that plus you know credit concerns in in the loan books as well as in commercial real estate you know that could surface as well so like I, I you know that in a nutshell plus dollar liquidity being an issue overseas 
I think that could be what upends what has been a good year so far. Yeah, it sure has. Stocks trade starts trades particularly well, you know, and the the economy seems to be holding up pretty well for um, you know, uh, which is which has been a been a big surprise to a lot of people, in, including myself. Um, yeah, so it sounds like uh, you know, so it sounds like you you highlight some positive risks. You know, the 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 economy maybe works a little bit better than we thought at higher rates, and then we get this sort of immaculate disinflation and the soft landing, although historically unlikely. Um, I really liked you know, but many more negative risks. I really liked how you put it that all this Fed all this tightening shows up at once, not just the Fed, um, but. But bank bank credit conditions tightening, uh, you know, et cetera. I'm sort of sympathetic to that view. Um, but uh, certainly going to be an interesting one um, for our listeners. Definitely check out MUFG's foreign exchange outlook, um, which which among other things has George's forecast and later thoughts on the U.S. rates market. And again, if you are not receiving George's strategy reports, please do get in contact with George directly. George, thanks so much. Great stuff as always. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. And thank you for listening to the MUFG Global Markets Podcast. Rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And reach out to your MUFG sales rep for any further information. Check back soon for more insights from the Global Markets Research Team.